Hello, and welcome to That New Car Sense. My name is Jack Van Way of Shiva AI. And my name is Trevor Kerwin of Shiva AI. Welcome to our very first episode. Join us as we'll be discussing what's new at the frontier of the driver's digital experience. How the inside of your car is a place you're going to want to be, not just a place you need to be. And when it is a place you need to be, we'll talk about the future of connectivity and mobility that are coming together to make the customer's in-car user experience memorable for all kinds of brands. Here's what you can expect. Trevor and I will unpack and discuss the latest news and announcements from the front lines of the new digital car experience. And then we'll be bringing in interesting guests to dig down further and enlighten you and us on some new aspect of this fast-growing space. Look for a new episode every month or so. And please follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at Shiva AI and read more information about us in the podcast description below. And so with that, let's dive into our news of the week. So what do you think of this news coming out of Ferrari, Trevor? Big news in the digital world, seeing all this movement from a company who is not known for digital transformation. You know, compared to uh, what a Ferrari sounds like, this was like the quietest press release I've seen in so long. This is like the spiritual home of the sports car of Italian motorsports design and finally giving way to its own digital transformation. It, if anybody's seen the, the movie uh, Ferrari versus Ford, um, they know that, you know, the, the whole ethos of Ferrari is a small number of cars, but everything's basically hand built. I mean, it's a very symbol of speed and style and wealth and performance, like 10,000 cars a year that are hand built yet even that small output still makes them the 10th largest automaker in the world by market cap. So you can't forget that, right? I mean, these, these are guys that know how to make cars. Uh, certainly at a price point, maybe not all of us can afford, but um, everybody appreciates. And it's a publicly traded company. So you've got a board, you've got a lot of, uh, you know, you've got a lot of things that come along with being that kind of entity in this world. And sometimes old ways need to get a new coat of wax. So the firm founded 82 years ago by Enzo Ferrari announced it's shuffling its executive team and adding, but more importantly, adding some new people um, who to look at their place in the new digital automotive world. Amongst those new positions reporting to the CEO, so straight up the chain, are a new chief digital data officer, uh, somebody who, you know, it says, of course, they're looking at internal processes like that person should be doing and external partnerships as well, though, more importantly, for digital transformation. So Ferrari can't just say, here's this, the old school way of saying, here's just, here's this, it's a Ferrari. You're going to want this. Here it is. They had to look at how they fit into the, the bigger digital ecosystem of the world. And this is a job that they tapped an ex uh, Microsoft exec for, by the way. And then there's a new chief technology and infrastructures officer. So as the title might imply, looking not just at their own infrastructure, how they do things to build cars at Ferrari. But again, the ecosystems and platforms the automaker needs to be a part of in the future. I mean, when you hear those titles like that, Jack, like what do you think of when you see, you know, somebody's appointing a new chief digital officer at a place that seems so old school like Ferrari? Yeah, um, I definitely, I definitely agree. It's, it's always exciting to talk about a luxury sports car like Ferrari, not just because I wish I had one, in the driveway or more like the garage to protect it. But, uh, you know, they're just, they're the staple of, you know, the car industry where like, that's 
the crown jewel of like sports cars. Everyone's like, oh, Ferrari. Everyone knows what Ferrari is. I mean, it's not like your typical Ford or GM or, you know, like, which that's what everyone has. It's Ferrari. So seeing them make a, lo- a large move, like getting a new chief digital officer and with the background that they have is is showing something pretty massive that you just wouldn't expect from Ferrari. Um, you know, it's showing their own advancement into the digitalization of the 21st century and the trends that come with it. It's, it's important to follow what a consumer wants and Ferrari sees that consumers want total connectivity and a better driver experience as a whole. And, you know, this, this is the way they're going. And one thing that's not to do with automotive necessarily, but Ferrari has already been making its first steps with, uh, digitalization and this whole new chief digital officer strategy by making its own NFTs, non-fungible tokens and selling collectible, collectible tokens of their, you know, Ferrari cars and more. And this is just something you wouldn't expect from Ferrari. Um, I, it's really cool. And, uh, I don't probably soon they're going to be more expensive than the car, the way NFTs have been going. (laughs) Um, no, but uh, another another thing is uh, a recent webinar I watched had other luxury car companies and they were talking about the whole car buyer experience and what consumers want. And, you know, companies like, uh, you know, Bentley and these other high end car companies are, you know, realizing that consumers want a much more digital and customizable experience. And this is where they're sort of upgrading their ideology in these areas. And just where, where else do you see this going, Trevor? Well, it, and the, you, you touched on something really important there, Jack, when you talk about the, the customer experience in car. Um, you know, if you think of a Ferrari um, uh, like you, I can't afford one either. But, um, and I don't even know if I know many people who can, Jack, but it, I know that they are, that's a car you buy for performance. Um, it's not an SUV that you're going to pick up groceries with, right? So it is a, a pure strapping yourself to an engine and a chassis and going somewhere quickly. And like even that world. So even for Ferrari to say, that's what a Ferrari experience is um, versus a, um, a, a, you know, a pickup truck experience or a, station wagon experience or something right i'm not going to pick on anybody else's brand yeah. but they uh, it, but that idea of okay even that that pure performance adrenaline rush needs a digital component to it uh we need to rethink that world because that's what the person climbing into that the cockpit of that ferrari thinks and it, when it comes to the guys that they're hiring which is a really interesting just sort of you know looks like a boring um org chart discussion but i think there's a little bit of overlap between those two guys Uh, it'd be interesting to see how they stay out of each other's way and but uh it's really that ferrari is thinking is is definitely thinking like a lot of other automakers are absolutely well okay that's great that's uh the first thing that's the first thing we saw this week um the next thing it's you know it's been a couple weeks now CES is wrapped up at the start of January, um, other than the news that it was a lot more uh, remote than in person than people kind of hoped it was because of uh, the COVID issues. 
Uh, still a lot of news got made there. Jack, what did you hear out of CES? Yeah, Trevor, um, you know, definitely it was one of those things where everyone was worried about if it was still going to be in person as much as virtual with the whole COVID problems and the rise of the new variant. But uh, still, a lot of people attended and they got a lot of fresh news out with the automotive industry. A lot of exciting news, really, especially with the whole connected car experience and autonomous solutions and, you know, around the area we're, you know, hoping to talk about, uh, you know, huge news coming out of Stellantis that, you know, they're linking with Amazon as, you know, they've been, Amazon's been working with a bunch of companies for EVs like Rivian and, uh, you know, a few other ones just trying to figure out, I think what's best for their fleet. But the news, news of Stellantis linking with Amazon to do a mutually beneficial agreement is, uh, you know, interesting. And, you know, their idea is that Stellantis sells, Amazon EVs and Amazon helps Stellantis with their in-vehicle software, which includes their, you know, not only their navigation, but the connected side of things. And because Stellantis is looking at the $23 billion software service industry and trying to get their hands in it. You know, every company wants to get their hands in an industry that's worth $23 billion. So, you know, how can you get extra revenue? And that's working with, you know, connected cars and autonomous services. Um, you know, that, that's definitely a trend we're seeing every, you know, more and more of every year. And, uh, you know, Vo- everyone wants the Tesla experience. Um, but, uh, Volvo is also making some big news in this space, trying to partner with here as well as other companies to make, you know, deliveries more precise with their mapping data, as well as, you know, the entirety of the connected car experience. And, you know, I, I know you, know a little more about that. So I'll let you talk about that more, but, um, and, you know, other just company news that I, you know, I caught was Bosch chief digital officer says connected and autonomous solutions will boost revenue. And so they're looking into the deep dive of supplying as a tier one, um, you know, this connected car and um, autonomous solutions to make up that all these companies are losing with low production numbers from the chip shortage and I, I, I see this happening pretty much all across the board. Companies need to make up this extra revenue that they lost in not being able to produce as many cars and uh, you know, devices, the hardware that you need with these chips. So how are they seeing a way to make up this money? By selling software and making money on transactions that happen around the vehicles. You, you can't just write it off on your you know, yearly finance sheet that, oh, it's, we're going to lose billions. You know, it's okay. Um, you know, millions, billions, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, they got to make up the money somehow, you know, that they got to do a new technique or something. And this is where I see it coming through. But, um, you know, you know, with what I saw, I know you saw different companies, you know, in their news. Uh, what, what did you pull from CES, Trevor? Well, like you said, there, there was some interesting news. I, I saw two big things. Uh, well, one bigger thing and one smaller thing. Uh, the, as you mentioned, uh, Qualcomm. So Qualcomm signed up uh, uh, some new OEMs to its Snapdragon digital chassis platform. So this, this uh, you know, this is, think of this as the, the interior digital um, uh, guts of the car, if you want to have a nicer way to think about it. Um, the, the, right now, that includes the Snapdragon ride platform for assisted and automated driving, uh, ADAS. Uh, that's obviously a big theme 
that was a big thing to see. Yes, that'll be a big theme every year for the next 20 years. Um, they're as well as their the ADAS platform, uh, Snapdragon, their auto connectivity platform for LTE, uh, for LTE, their 5G connected services, uh, cellular vehicle to everything. Um, that's you know, communication protocols as well, Wi Fi, Bluetooth, and precise positioning. Like, so that's and the next generation of their Snapdragon cockpit, which is a digital cockpit and infotainment system. So that's all of the parcel of this Snapdragon digital chassis platform. So Volvo and Honda have announced platforms to integrate that digital uh, cockpit into their upcoming electric vehicles. And Renault, which is already committed to uh, bringing in uh, the cockpit in future cars, has expanded the partnership to include everything the chassis has to offer as well. GM will be relying on, uh, additionally, on relying on Snapdragon for the next version of assisted driving um, they have some of the other pieces of that themselves already, so they only really need that piece. But there, and and within that, there's uh, in, in addition to sort of with Qualcomm doing that, Nvidia also debuted, you know, had a rival platform called their Drive Orient platform for autonomous vehicles. Um, one of the sort of bigger, cooler, long distance trucking uh, autonomous startups. Too simple. We'll use their tech and Volvo said they're going to integrate it into their um, long haul trucking pieces as well, along with Qualcomm Snapdragon. We just mentioned before for the, the infotainment piece of that. So that's what's going on inside the car. There's, there's a really big theme that we should probably talk about in some future episode here about the intersection between electric vehicle rollouts and autonomous driving as paired technologies that are advancing forward together um and you know why that is uh, i'm guessing that in redesigning the car for uh, as an ev versus a, a combustion engine car it's it's easier to integrate these new things at the same time but it'd be really great for us to find out from somebody like from bringing on somebody from an oem in the future but that's, so that's the big story. Uh, then there's a smaller piece. Um, BlackBerry is dead. Long live the BlackBerry. The same month that BlackBerry bricked their, you know, their, their once everywhere handsets with the keyboard. They're the first world's first smartphone. Um, they announced new partnerships at CES. Um, uh, a firm called Pateo, which is a, a Chinese internet of vehicle service firm, going to be working with BlackBerry on a new integrated cockpit. So that's the thing that most people don't know. BlackBerry is kind of pivoted towards autonomous vehicle and, and in-vehicle software. So they're going to a new integrated cockpit with a, a as of yet unnamed uh, Chinese automaker for their new EV lineup as well. So the software company most renowned for its mobile phones, uh, maybe didn't share much at CES what the cockpit would look like because uh, the automaker hasn't been named yet, but it it should encompass features uh, like intelligent voice, entertainment, vehicle health monitoring, so telematics, uh, secure payment, and cloud technologies as well. And uh, you know that's that's kind of where. I saw stuff from uh, that. That those are the big news stories for me that came out of CES this year. Of course, aside from autonomous cars being everywhere. Yeah, it's always exciting to see uh, what happens at CES, especially you know it's sort of you know the beginning of wrapping into a new year and starting like sort of a what's going to happen in twenty twenty two 
for all these companies. And you know, it's super exciting to see CES 2023, hopefully everyone in person, and uh, see if they capitalize on you know what they, they say they're going to do and what new advancements we get in the space. But moving on to our last segment we're talking about, data and you know what data actually means and is and what we're going to be saying here is data is it actually the new oil and uh what, what do you think trevor well i have to say jack having been you know the last ooh, five six years focused on distributed systems and iot and, and you know digital transformation in general um i'm as guilty as anybody of promoting this idea of data being the new oil um, you've seen it everywhere. And if you think about it in terms of how often in a, an industrial digital transformation project, um, the, one of the things that gets promised is, hey, you're this 100-year-old company that makes widgets. And you've got five factories. And one factory was built 80 years ago. And another one was built 50 years ago. And two other ones were built 20 years ago. And then one is only five years old. And they all have different legacy systems and you spent a lot of time to gather all those together. But even still, you don't see all of the data you could possibly see. And then if you, once you see all the data and get it and then analyze it, and then you'll get new insights that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get. That's supposed to be what a digital transfer gives, gives you more margin at the bottom line or less work or whatever it is, makes, makes the, the processes and uh, uh, makes everything you do as a, as a company that much more efficient uh, or lucrative or easy. And, and, the, and so the pitch is typically, so let's gather all of that data together from all those old factories and all those old systems, and then let's clean it up. And then let's analyze it. And then let's take that analysis and garner some insights. And, and what this winds up being is this often an overwhelming process. And, and there's, a, there's an interesting stat about um, how many digital transformation projects fail or IoT projects fail, right? Because it boils down to a guy having to say like, oh man, that is so hard to do all, like gather all that data together and get, and, and get some nonsense out of it because of the way our organization works. So why don't we just pick this new project? We're just going to install this new piece of hardware that's going to generate its own new set of data. And then I'm going to get new insights from that new thing, right? That's not really a digital transformation. That's going out to buy a new piece of hardware. So this idea of data being the new oil, like you're going to be so awash in all of this new knowledge that you're going to have your business will be transformed. Maybe not necessarily be true. And the reality is, for this is what you and me were talking about this this is actually this idea of like no data is not the new oil came from an article in wired magazine um where they i think they equate it to it's more like the new sand (laughs) in that it's plentiful and can be problematic and sand is one of the most plentiful silicon is one of the most plentiful substances on earth um so sand is everywhere like oil uh, allegedly would be and and therefore you know it's great that it's there's lots of it, but it's not so great in that it can be a pain depending on how you uh, depending on where the sand is at any given time. So they they give a great point about what you know. You have these digital forward companies like the, like a Amazon or a 
Salesforce or LinkedIn or something like that. Like that's a digital native company, right? That's in other words, if I broke it up, all there is is data and some used office furniture, really. It's some intellectual property, right? There's, there's no factories. There's no, you know, stuff they own really. Um, if those companies, uh, you know, if I were to, if I was, uh, you know, Tesla and, I wanted, for some reason, I bought Amazon. Um, those are probably the only two guys that could think like that. If I were to buy Amazon and then the next day, you know, trucks show up with all of Amazon's, uh, you know, all of your Amazon customer data, everything that you use, you know, people who use Prime, people who watch video, people who use music, what people buy, um, how often they buy it, like all of that customer data that's, that's, is basically Amazon. That is Amazon, right? That is, it, it's lethally important to Amazon to have it. And you were just to give it to me at Tesla so I can use it for Tesla-related things. It may not have any insight at all. It may be utterly, nine-tenths of it may be utterly useless to me. And, and so that's the point. Uh, it, it, there, the issue isn't, you know, your Amazon data is useless to Exxon. Um, you know, Tesla's telematics data is useless to eBay. Right, but it is mission critical and life giving to Amazon uh, and Tesla in that particular case. So it's not all sand. It, it, I love the idea of saying it's not oil; it's sand. Or at the very least, uh, you know, my analogy is: it, it, your date is not a Budweiser you get everywhere. It's a designer cocktail that only you like, that only a certain bar makes. So I know, Jack, you're more of a digital native than me um, or so society tells us we have to be given how old each of us is. What do you think about the, this idea of, you know, the, you, you've lived in a immersed in a data world, you know, since you've been able to. So, uh, you know, what do you look at when you see this? It's, it's interesting to, you know, look at it from a different perspective with a, you know, you know, the age differences for sure. Um, you know, Data is one of those things, you know, now data is like you learn that data is everything and data is everywhere and data needs to be collected nonstop. And the more data you have, the better. But, you know, there's, there's a constant battle between collecting as much data as you can and only collecting useful data. You can get lost in the data. So, uh, you know, the way I see data is it's you, you need to know like sort of what's the oil, and the different idea to look at this and saying, you know, like what we call it, data is oil, you know, like it's, it's not a liquid asset when it comes to a source of money, but needs to be collected and used in the correct way to be useful. And uh, you know, it, it, there's turnover there, you know, it's like, you gotta, you gotta use it to create the, you know, the usefulness and like the, I guess you want to call it the fuel of it. Um, and, you know, you have to know what to collect and how to collect it. And not all data is good data. It's important to figure out what your good data is and, um, you know, why are you collecting it? Uh, you know, that's, that's the way I look at it. You know, the quick rant, I guess, with data. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, making sure that it's that designer cocktail your company wants. You know, it's, if you collect data that's a Budweiser, is it going to help your company? That's sort of the viewpoint I think you got to look at it. You know, if you're collecting all this sand, is this sand going to turn into something? If you want to use a, 
a sand analogy. Are you going to make bulletproof glass with it? Uh, <laughs> Having so, the biggest pile of sand isn't necessarily enough. Uh, yeah. Nor does yeah. it have value, right? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. And so, you know, collecting it the most useful way and making it as, I guess you want to say, liquid as possible, making it, you know, useful, you know, that's where data becomes oil. And I'm going to put it in parentheses because, again, it's a tough analogy. But, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, it's it's going to be interesting, again, to just see how this develops because I think data is just going to be, become more and more available and then we have to fine-tune it more and more as time goes on. You know, data is going to be something we're, we're stuck with for a while. But, you know, and it's interesting where I've watched, you know, breathless um, – press releases and, and news stories and so on talking about um you know whether it's oh the hashing of bitcoin is going to consume all the world's electricity in five years or <clears throat> there will be so many data centers in north america that we're going to have power grid problems right and i look at that and i say okay storing data is actually not very energy intensive um and if, if maybe if you think about the analogy, like you just pointed out, like, okay, just because you have the biggest pile of sand, it may not make it any more valuable. Um, storing data until, you know, like keeping an old <laughs> pair of pants until it comes back in style is really cheap to do. I can store it somewhere and it doesn't take a lot of effort to store it. And then maybe somewhere down the road, I'm like, oh, you know, when we were collecting that stuff, that actually told us something we didn't realize now because something else has changed. So it, it's it's interesting to say, okay, you can hoard as much data as you like. It just doesn't necessarily have a great deal of value to anybody but you. And it may not have any even have much value to you at the end of the day. Anyway, that's, uh, that's our wrap-up uh, for this week's Look at the News. We'd like to welcome up uh, Evgeny Klochkin now, uh, CEO and founder of Shiva.ai. Evgeny, thanks for joining us today. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, Shiva's journey to get here. Oh, thanks for being here and uh, kicking off this whole podcast series uh, that uh, we're doing here and uh, really looking into multiple different topics around location-based services and uh, vehicle location-based services and everything around connectivity, automotive industry, and all the recent trends that fascinate a lot of people around, not only us, but hopefully many other audiences that are interested in uh, the cars and how we drive and where we go and how we interact with different services around those. So um, really, um, I, I have been in this business for over six years now, specifically with this, and we started this whole business around a very simple problem that I had with parking, whereas... I had to walk all the way to the parking meter as my pregnant wife was waiting in the car, waiting for late for doctor's appointment. And I had to take the receipt. I had to go back and then I had to put it on the dash. And the first question I asked to myself is, why can't I just park and walk away? Why can't the car actually interact with all of this infrastructure around us and make it much easier and more seamless? And that is this whole, uh, this is how the whole journey of uh, Shiva.ai started back in the day. And then as we moved on and, uh, you know, done a, a few pilots and projects and tests around the product in the parking industry, uh, we had other industries getting interested, such as fueling or EV charging, where energy companies were saying, hey, if you can detect a vehicle at the parking space and kind of automate the whole user journey there as to making it park and walk, uh, can you also do the same at the gas pump? 
so that the guest pump can get activated automatically and actually uh, create a more seamless user experience. So really everything we do here at Shiva.ai, um, it uh, revolves around the driver and really facilitating the driver journey and really making sure including outside of the vehicle, not only the driver itself, uh, and really facilitating or resolving some of those frustrations that all of us have around traffic, around parking, and around many other things that are related to our driving experiences themselves. And, and, and you're right. I mean, that that driver experience is something that is changing dramatically in the world of mobility. Um, you know, the, the, the relationship uh, customers have with their cars. And, and it's something that you mentioned you were you and I were in a call uh, together, and you actually threw out that term of location CRM. And when I heard it, I'm like, "Oh, that's exactly what this is." Uh, you know, think about the world of CRM, Salesforce, Zoho, etc. I mean, what is, when you said that term, location CRM, what does it mean to you in context of you know how Shiva works? Well, that's a very good question, Trevor. Thanks for bringing it up. Essentially, as uh, we have been developing this of the vehicle to automate all those in-car payments, last mile services, navigation, all of this, all of this, it, it's all about location in the end. It's all about the content of the driver and what exactly you need right now. So the point being is, okay, you may have a CRM and the CRM means, oh, a salesperson called to someone and then they need to make sure that they manage that customer, that they deliver, that they follow on. And then there is a certain process of engaging with that customer. Uh, so when we think about location-based CRM is the term that we're trying to uh, use here to, to describe what we're doing at Shiba.ai with connected vehicles, it's really on the location of the customer what exactly they need at that given moment in time. Think about yourself. When you drive a car and you stop at the gas pump, it's very obvious what you need there. You need petrol, right? You need fuel. Uh, if you go and uh, you drive an electric vehicle and you stop at the charging spot, what do you need there? You need electricity. You need the charging. Or when you go somewhere downtown San Francisco uh, to a restaurant and then you're looking for a parking spot for a long time and then finally you, you stop there and you leave the vehicle, it's very obvious what you need there. You need parking and, and maybe paying for parking as well. Uh, Avoiding the meter and avoiding the, the weight, as I was describing my personal story there uh, that led to creation of this company in the first place. So understanding this context is what location-based CRM is. Uh, and it's really expanding the actual concept of customer relationship management where we could go ahead and actually has, have this communication to the driver exactly when they need it without creating an annoyance. Which, uh, which all of us noticed probably multiple times on the web where, oh, I, I just talked to my wife about something and then boom, I have a Facebook ad about the same thing. I'm like, how the heck did they learn about it, right? So, so all these frustrations is what we want to avoid in this whole journey, actually making sure that location of the vehicle uh, is not used to, um, to intervene into the privacy uh, of people, of the drivers, but rather used to actually understand what the driver needs at every given moment in time and at every, at every, at, at every given location, right? Uh, and actually help them to, uh, to do what they need rather than try to push some services that they may not necessarily even need because they were just talking to someone else. Right. And, and I mean, I look at this, you know, it's, it's so uh, cool right now for people to say Web3, right? And I looked at it when, when you mentioned that, you know, CRM 1.0, like the original CRM, like you're, you're the old day planner paper book you had, right? To, 
you know, the first digital address books and the things where you can gather enough information. An Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that, 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 you know, that was CRM 1.0. And then, you know, that wasn't enough to power Salesforce to where it is today, of course. Salesforce comes in with like 2.0 where there's operational data, there's overlays of what does that customer mean to us as a company? And, and there's a whole new set of dimensions. I look at what we're doing now is like, okay, it's, it's CRM 3.0 where, you know, you're, you're staying with the customer in real time right. and, and gathering data that way. Um, and, and I fully agree with you, Trevor, on this vision that this is really is the next step. Um, and uh, let me just give you one quote from one customer we have been uh, talking to uh, from an energy company. And uh, he was, he's a retailer director. So he would say, hey, I have one million transactions a day at my fuel stations. I have no idea who these people are. So that is the problem we have to solve. We actually have to create those links that today do not really exist between those service providers and the drivers because every week at least I go to a fuel station. Do I care as a driver where, where I go? Most of the time, no. Now, can there be some specific gas station that will actually create this relationship? Because in the end, this is the whole reason why social media exists. We're looking for relationships. We human beings are, you know, social animals, right? We're looking to build those relationships all the time. And if there is none, then there's just, you know, no attachment. I can go to any gas station and now can I actually go to a specific one? Do I understand? Do I recognize it in my mind psychologically that this is a good experience? Like that is what we're trying to create here. And that is what I think really defines the CRM 3.0 that Trevor, you brought up. Wow. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I didn't want to interrupt you guys. You guys were going off each other uh, right away. Um, but uh, no, I definitely agree. It's, it's bringing the OEM and the rest of the system closer together to that end user that has always been so far apart. Um, but, you know, now that we have defined where Location CRM is going and where it is right now, where, where do you think Location CRM is heading? What's the potential of it in the future? Um, the potential is one big mega trend, Jack, which is personalization, right? It's all about delivering those individualized experience specifically tailored for me uh, as a customer, as a consumer, as a driver. And obviously, all of us uh, have multiple roles uh, in, um, in this world, and every role has its own definitions. Right now, let's look at us as a driver. What do I need? How can you personalize my experience? Where car makers have been absolutely amazing, right, is when we buy a vehicle, we buy this by the emotion. We do not always buy it by like, uh, obviously we all know Ferrari or Lamborghini are great cars. <laughs> not every one of us have a, kind of, uh, can afford them. Uh, but the point being is that when we actually choose a car, when we go to a dealership, we have to have this experience of a test drive, right? Obviously we have some online sales, Delivered to you, and then you have some money back guarantee, and so on. But the point being is that it's really about this emotional attachment to the vehicle, because there's a, one very interesting statistic that I saw a couple of years ago. Over 50% of Americans only find privacy inside their own cars, because at home they may have families, they may they may have kids, they may have whatever. They only have privacy inside their cars. Half of Americans. 
this is a, this is a big deal, right? Because that the only place where you have certain psychological mode when you drive or when when you're parked or just staying there for some time. So obviously, a car has such a big attachment to the American way of life as well as everywhere in the world, right? Uh, it has it in Europe. It has certain status, right? It has it in Asia because you want a better car, you want a bigger car somewhere. So this thing, the vehicle is such a big part of our lives and it's really such a life-defining thing uh, that we own there. And it seems to me this personalization is where all of this is going in terms of delivering you the service and actually really like the transition. At home, you're very personal. You have your family members uh, and, and you're actually interacting with them. It's very personal. Now, can we create the same type of personal space inside the car that is recognizing you for you? right actually delivering those services to you when you need them actually understanding oh i like this particular thing you arrived at the specific guest station. Oh, there's a coffee that you love here why don't we deliver it to you right so actually looking at it from the perspective of holistic experience inside the car this is what i think is where this uh, and it's all is building up on this mega trend this is personalization Right. And, you know, you, you made a really important point there that, uh, you know, we've often looked at all of the things that are happening right now in the world of mobility around cars, you know, whether it's autonomous vehicles or, you know, various types of last mile vehicles or mobility as a service like Uber or something like that. And, and the, the underlying belief there is, well, it, the car is your second biggest. If you're an American, your car is your second biggest asset. And it's, uh, you know, but you only use it. 7% of the time or whatever the low percentage of the time oh. that you see mentioned over and over again, but you just put your thumb on something that's very important. <laughs> and maybe COVID is part of the thing that drove us to that. Um, I, I'm, there's a whole host of things up, but no, it, it may only be 7% of your use or 10% or, or of the time that the car sits in your garage or in front of your house or whatever, or at work that it gets used, but it's a critical 10% to your productivity as a person, right? As a driver, as an end customer. And like, for, so obviously, culture, is there anywhere else you could think of that might be um, where you might see this effective, more effectively rolled out, uh, like different geographies? Like, is there different rules around data or connectivity itself or the adoption of connectivity in some other fashion that you might see this faster or slower being adopted? Um, you know, that, that's, a, that's a really interesting question because, as you may know, we also have a subsidiary in uh, India, uh, which is very active, and we're actually really looking forward to working with multiple Indian customers uh, there uh, in New Delhi and Mumbai and Hyderabad and, you know, Bangalore. So there, there is no real difference in a way of, how, of what the user is looking for, Right. There are differences, as you rightly mentioned, regulation or trends or the specific market dynamics. But if we focus as a company uh, over here, as well as anyone else looking into the space, if we focus on the end user experience, that is what matters, right? Now, obviously, end user experience is expected differently in different countries, right? Um, if you ever were in India, um, uh, drivers do not like to keep in line there, which it was amazing to me when I was there, right? Where people just literally do not stay in lane. Uh, although it probably is safer, but it's just how they drive. So there are certain things that are specific uh, to the markets across the globe. 
it's personalization. The driver still wants this relationship. There are certain things that are just foundational to all human beings that are replicable across the world. Now, when you look at the market dynamics, uh, what is so important about India is because digital uh, digitalization. Uh, absolute amazing trend out there. They're behind only China in terms of the speed at which uh, digital payments are growing in India. Uh, and then if you have that environment, if you have that market trend, oh, uh, why can't we now digitize the payments inside the car? That is even better than having any other things like, you know, special apps. And I already have a, a thousand apps on my phone. So creating another one, right? So, so all of these, like, we can actually facilitate certain trends that already exist in the different marketplaces or look into Europe, right? Electric vehicles is such a big deal out there. Uh, obviously, it's becoming more and more of a big deal in the, in the United States as well. Uh, but the point being is, oh, uh, this is also an experience where we need some digitization because you have a million different providers of charging stations, charging networks, right? Um, and, and it's super hard to find them. There were horrible stories coming of the UK, out of the UK about a year ago where uh, someone's driving an EV and they could not get home from London, which was supposed to be a one-hour drive. They could not get ha- get home for nine hours because they could not find a charging station. They were stuck somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so understanding those issues and being able to solve them uh, and actually obviously contextualize them uh, to the specific market, but having those foundational needs of the drivers across the world that is what that is where by the way i believe automotive industry has been so good at because all of those companies are global right all of them there there are very few oems that are actually very local almost all of them are global because they understand the specific needs of the uh, people for mobility for transportation and now we're trying to make it as a next step to understand the need for connectivity the need for the services delivered to you personally inside the car yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just read an article the other day that backs up what you said about EVs growing in Europe, where EVs have now passed diesel in sales last quarter. So it you know it shows the craziness of the EV extent where it's it's exploding and there's there's no stopping it now. And that's where I sort of see where this is going. But while we continue the talk of adoption, you know, there always has to be a first where you know, a first person decides this is the trend they want to go. Huh. Where do you see, you know, this adoption happening first? You know, if you're asking about a specific industry, which would kind of just, just jump on that, um, yeah. uh, that is number one, right? Because every car needs fuel or every car needs electricity. That Therefore, that's a big winner, the energy industry, because that's who has drivers as customers every day in, in millions, right? Um, and therefore, um, like that's where automated fueling, automated charging, all of these things can really, really help. Uh, but then if you're asking me more in terms of the in-depth view of this whole location-based CRM topic, it's all about advertisements in the end. And advertisements not in the negative sense of the word, right? Not something that is annoying. Because if you look at the history of the advertising industry, uh, you think about, oh, TV was such a big deal, right? Advertisement commercials on TV are so expensive because why? Because there's just so much audience looking, right? So much millions of people watching at the same time. And that is why probably some of them will actually, you know, 
they will recognize something from a commercial when they go to the grocery store next time or department store next time, right? So, so that was kind of advertising industry 1.0 type of thing. Um, then you have more targeted marketing now with Facebook, with Google, right? And how does it work? It actually tries to recognize what the specific customer wants. When you go on Google and you search for something, that is how Google Ads work, right? Because it's trying to understand by your IP address where you are more or less located and trying to give you specific personalized outputs. Now, advertising industry 3.0 probably or 4 or 5.0 in today's world, that is where it's always going is really to understand the context of the driver and not advertise for the sake of advertising, right? But actually advertise for the sake of helping. So that is where I think this movie changing, right? Because now we're making uh, those advertisements so personal, even anymore as advertisements, which is why I, I said specifically at the beginning of this, that it's not in the negative sense. It's actually in the positive sense of advertisement being a helper to you as a driver, as a customer, right? So, so that is where I think that is happening today in how we interact with the driver and not only from the loyalty perspective, but just generally from understanding the customer to the best possible degree, even beyond what social media has already been doing for us. Well, that's, this has been a fantastic discussion. Evgeny. Thank you very much for, uh, for helping us walk through the concept and the, uh, the possibilities around location CRM. Thank you, Trevor. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks to all of you joining us today at That New Car Sense. On behalf of my co-host, Trevor, our guest today, and the whole Shiva AI team, we're humbled you've taken the time to listen. If you have anything you'd like to hear us discuss in future episodes, we're all ears too. We hope you've taken away something good today. If you have any questions about today's podcast, email us at outreach at shiva.ai. And you'll see more information, links, and our social handles in the podcast description below. Till then, enjoy the drive. Talk to you next time.